something is going to have to give in the system. And if we continue to go back to the same well, looking for diversity that wasn't there in the first place, that problem will persist. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. We'd hire candidates who are underrepresented minorities. We just can't find them. That sentiment has been echoed by hiring managers and their organizations for decades. Yet, despite the pandemic's impact on jobs, many tech jobs still go unfilled or searches last for months, creating a top of funnel issue, more jobs than candidates. And despite the attention given to diversity in tech, the needle has barely moved. So where's the disconnect? In our continuing series on race in tech, today we are going to explore the top of the funnel and the ways that organizations can not only expand their candidate pool, but also have a much more diverse candidate pool. Today's guest, Jennifer Carlson, is the executive director of Apprenti, an apprenticeship program focused exclusively on tech jobs and candidates. Jennifer, welcome to Status Go. Thanks, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here today. I'm really excited about our conversation. I know you and I had an opportunity to chat, gosh, probably towards the end of last year now, um, about the work that you're doing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to our audience being able to hear about the exciting things that you're doing. But before we get started, you've been holding out on me a bit. When we first talked, you shared a bit about your background as an executive in the insurance industry. What you didn't share was that your career started in sports marketing and you've worked for the likes of the Orlando Magic, the Sonics, and the Storm. You have to tell us about your journey from sports marketing to insurance and now to the executive director of Apprenti. Oh, that's a long and sordid story. How much time do you have, Jeff? <laughs> so uh, let's see. The... Um, my background in sports uh, originates with my dad. My dad did play-by-play -play for the Royals and the Chiefs and uh, then went on to Cincinnati and was third man on the Reds in the early 80s on WLW. And I just grew up in sports and it was kind of a natural offset for me. Um, when I went into the insurance industry, I actually started off as a media buyer, my first stop uh, with Progressive Insurance in Cleveland. And I went very quickly from doing media buying into running North America marketing, event marketing and sports marketing, basically auditing 50 states at a stage where Progressive in the 90s was trying to figure out its brand identity. And uh, that just sort of became the tipping point or the, the spot where my sports endeavors began. And before the NBA, I worked for Scott Boris representing baseball players when I left Progressive and uh, did marketing endorsements for those guys. It sort of seesawed between professional sports and insurance um, in, in a kind of weird way because, you know, insurance and car dealers and everybody else spends so much money in sports marketing. It made me a, a strangely hot commodity because I understood yeah. the business side of it. 
that's fascinating. I, I just had not made that connection. And as I was preparing for our conversation, I, I saw that in your background and it, it kind of jumped out at me because my uh, youngest son's background is in sports marketing. And his first gig out of college was selling tickets for the Chicago Bulls. And oh. he just had a blast doing that. So that really caught my attention. So let's dig into Apprentice and share the story of how you moved from being an executive in the insurance space mm -hmm. to founding this uh, amazing apprenticeship program. Well, I, I think it's uh, safe to say that the challenges that we have with talent development um, extend well beyond tech companies. All companies have tech departments, even as far yeah. back in my career. And uh, we're all competing for the same talent. So when I was at AIG, I was the business lead for a um, platform migration on the technology side. And it was sort of the first lens I had into both a, a combination of lack of diversity and how much outsourcing was being done to get the work done that we needed. And it was sort of the first thing that planted the seed in my head, if you will, about some of the challenges that we have. And when I moved and relocated to Seattle, this is not a insurance Mecca, it is a tech Mecca. <laughs> um, so I went to the trade association for tech to learn the industry since I wanted to make Seattle home. And in meeting with the companies here and getting exposed to the tech councils across other states in the US, it was clear that everybody had a lot of tactics uh, that they were engaging and employing to try and, you know, match talent better to the industry, create talent, but none of it was scalable. And I'm a, a business strategist by nature and having built multiple departments in large companies from scratch, I kind of looked at the system more holistically and met with a lot of our, our board members in Microsoft and Amazon, Zillow, F5, Tableau, big companies. And we had some pragmatic conversations about the challenges they had. Uh, and that led to me writing the business plan for Apprenti. Um, the funny thing is that I didn't use the word apprenticeship in my business plan, but the description that I gave was basically apprenticeship. And the state corrected me when I had that conversation with them at the time that investment was being made in expanding apprenticeship into non-traditional sectors. Interesting. So when you developed that business plan, who were you pitching the idea to and how did that uh, how did the idea morph into what is now a printing well i started with um kind of doing a landscape assessment on what it would take to get companies to the table and uh, opted to build it as a 501c3 a nonprofit, mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons um first being uh it, the access to support systems for both employers and for prospective candidates um, that you can source as a nonprofit, but you wouldn't be able to get access to as a for-profit. And second reason is because we can be the agnostic convener of multiple companies and the companies don't see us as looking for ways to upcharge them, that we're legitimately creating a business solution for them based on the, the credentials that we had. So it's, it's the, real, the rare opportunity that you could convene a Microsoft, Google, and Amazon at the same table to talk about the same issue where it doesn't start to you know, get into competitive space. And when you pitched that, mm -hmm. 
you had an idea of a smaller organization, but it very quickly grew into more of a statewide initiative, right? Uh, well, so WTIA, the Washington Technology Industry Association, mm -hmm. is the trade association for the state of Washington. But we knew that the employers who were already at the table had needs on a national footprint. So when I wrote the business plan, it was originally to pilot in Washington state. Okay. Um, but uh, and when I, I started building this was 2015 and we went live with our first cohort at the end of 2016. Um, and the intent being that we would expand to two more test states by 2018. And, and you know, we, we built a really good system. And, <laughs> um, you know, time is not always on your side. So the U.S. Department of Labor kind of preempted that and said, hey, um, we're putting out calls for contracts to an industry sectors, one contractor per sector to expand on a national footprint. And, you know, I, I discussed it with my board and, and the response was go big or go home. Um, <laughs> so if we're going to be able to serve these big companies, then we need to be able to serve them everywhere. Since we'd made the business case that we need to be able to do something for companies uh, that was a single solution and not one where they would have to figure out how to do it differently by geography. And so it was sort of the natural extension. And when we won the contract to be the IT sector lead, we basically put ourselves in a position of having to do a, uh, a tandem rollout of Washington and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And how many states are you in now? 19 as of yesterday. Wow. Wow. So who was the 19th? Kansas City. Well, Kansas. Kansas. Uh, but Kansas City on the Missouri border. So you're straddling too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So let's click into the program itself. If you're one of our listeners happens to be someone who would be interested in the apprenticeship, what's it look like from their perspective? How do they apply? What's the program look like? And, and walk us through that. Yeah. So from a consumer standpoint, the prospective candidate, um, they would go online to apprenticecareers.org. And there is an apply link there. There are no requirement for a background in tech. Um, 18 and over is the program. So the youngest person we've placed is 18, eldest is 65. And it's open to everyone uh, with, with no educational requirement other than high school and uh, no prior work experience requirement in tech. But there is a baseline that is required for understanding enough to be able to get into this space. So you'll take an assessment online at that uh, at Apprentice Careers, and that assessment is focused on math at an algebra and geoma uh, geometry level, and logic and critical thinking. Are you a good problem solver? And some emotional intelligence. And you need to score, depending on the market, above 80 to 85 on the assessment to be a candidate in the pool. It'll take you a couple of hours to get through that, but you can break it into smaller chunks. And then once you're in our candidate pool, we work with employers. We're a pull model, not a push model. Okay. So employers come to us and say, we are making room for X number of apprentices in Y role. So we're going to take five software developers as apprentices. And then we go to the candidate pool and start screening candidates to be part of the, the curated pool that we're going to send to the company. And the company gets the final interview, but it's a soft skills interview. 
It's uh, do they think that you've got the grit and tenacity, the aptitude to learn what we need to teach you to make you successful in the job. And then they sponsor you into apprenticeship and you'll end up in class, depending on the role, for between 12 and 20 weeks. And it's an immersive experience, 40 hours a week for those weeks. But you have a guaranteed job with that company at the end. So your only prerequisite at that point is to successfully complete the class. And then the company brings you on as a paid employee for a minimum of a year while you're getting ramped up into the job with a mentor who's teaching you the skills you need. And, you know, the, the short answer is it's a train to retain system. So the company is making an investment in you because it's a job they needed to fill and they want you to be teed up to for attention at the end of your apprenticeship. So the companies are really looking out a year, year and a half into the future when they're saying, Hey, we want, uh, five apprentices or four, however many, they're really looking to that future date. Correct. Well, they're, they're looking out to that future date for retention. They're getting the apprentice, you know, three to five months later. So when they say go, you know, it'll take a month for us to screen candidates and, and get them into a class environment. And then from there it's three to five months. So, you know, from an employer perspective, any, any job rec that you've had open for longer than three months is a job that should be considered as a potential for apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. So how do you decide which roles, when you were looking at this, um, IT roles were not really associated with apprenticeships, right? Uh, they were, apprenticeships were more for the trades, uh, electricians, plumbers, etc. So what roles and how did you map those roles into this program? Great questions. Um, so yeah, it's it's considered or had been historically considered for the United States more of a blue collar environment. And in reality, apprenticeship is a training methodology. That's that's its core. It's a combination of classroom and hands-on experience. And it's regulated by the federal government. And, and there's a minimum of 2,000 hours for a registered apprenticeship. Um, but it's been done in Europe and in Asia for as long as we've had apprenticeships in all occupations. So it's only new to us in the United States, in you know Germany, and we've, we followed uh, best practices in the United States of apprenticeship and the rules of how to engage in apprenticeship here. But um, we looked to the Finnish and the German models to get some key learnings and best practices. And in the UK or in uh, the UK, Great Britain, um, uh, Finland and Germany, the system of apprenticeship is about 70% of the population's jobs, 30% go to university. And we're in a very similar position in the United States in that 30% of the U.S. goes to college, but there isn't a clear outcome for the other 70%. Some choose to go into the trades. Others, you know, are self-taught into things. The U.S. is trying to formalize processes around expanding apprenticeship into every sector from financial services to healthcare to IT and tech. So let's focus on software development uh, for just the sake of, of the example. How much of the classroom time is specific to an employer's methodology versus this is the the baseline across, it doesn't matter who you work for, these are the skills that you need. 
Does, does that make sense? Yeah. I, oh, I think so. Let me, let me see if I can tackle that. Um, the job competencies as part of apprenticeship, we have 14 roles that are filed and approved for apprenticeship right now. Um, those 14 roles in terms of the competencies and skills required to do those jobs have been created by the 77 employers that have signed on with us so far. So they review those to standardize that taxonomy and say, yes, this is what the job looks like. So going back to software developer, the core aptitude or the skills and competencies look the same, whether you work for JP Morgan Chase, Microsoft, or Primera Blue Cross. You know, being a software developer, like how the, the software, the language works and how the directories work and, and how they get set up is based on the language, not the job. So the skills look the same across the sectors. Certainly there are nuances from HEPA compliance to financial services compliance, but those are industry centric. The core of the job looks the same. So that's what we documented and filed as a standardized taxonomy for the job. The training that you're asking about, the classroom training is derived from what the employer's expectations are. So there's very little off the shelf that we take um, our training partners that are teaching the curriculum uh, had a good baseline for us to start with, but then the employer gets to weigh in and decide you know, if there needs to be more of something and less of something else to get that person to the level they need to be to meet the employer's expectations. Does that answer your question? Well, so if I'm, uh, if I'm an apprentice and we'll just say Microsoft, uh, Microsoft uh, has mm -hmm. agreed that I look like a candidate that they would like to nurture through this program. Am I in class with only other Microsoft apprentices or am I in there with apprentice that might be going to Premier Blue Cross? Yeah. So I guess what's this, what's the specificity in that classroom? Uh, in the example that you use, Microsoft has closed cohorts with us. So it's an entirely Microsoft cohort ah, because okay. they're, uh, the curriculum is then largely controlled or influenced by them, and they're hiring enough people to close the cohort. In the case of blended cohorts, um, because there's there's our C-sharp cohorts, mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of Java cohorts that are uh, blended, where we might have four or five employers represented in the room. And it's a cohort where they're supporting each other because they're all apprentices, but they might be going to different companies. But again, the language of Java and learning how to operate it looks the same regardless. So the company really has the choice of whether it's closed or, or blended, as you say. Correct. As you were working with the employers or even working with new employers today, how do you get past this four-year degree hurdle that you find in so many job descriptions for software developers? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's we're now getting to a point where it's a culture conversation with the company. That degree requirement, uh, I think, has more to do with risk management or risk mitigation than actual need. And the companies that are signing on with us are largely companies that are putting a stake in the ground and saying, we recognize that not all jobs require the college degree. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some of that is just out of sheer necessity that we can't find enough people. But realistically, the, the companies 
large and small that are engaging are doing it because they're kind of looking across the spectrum of roles and saying, if they have competency and we can train them to this level, the level that that classroom standard can get them to, they can be successful in the role. And they're willing to test the idea that a college degree may not be the only pathway to getting to that kind of talent. One of the things that I think we talked about uh, back at the end of last year was the, the way that you approached the various roles. And uh, you kind of looked at them, and I, and I think I have these numbers from our conversation that when you look at a specific set of roles, about 40% needed the degree work. So that left 60 Mm -hmm. percent that really didn't need it and then of that 60 10 percent are the entry-level jobs in tech that would be like help desk game tester so you're really focused on that other 50 percent right right and it's the 50 percent that companies are spending the most in trying to attract talent um, and are largely having to poach which means they're paying more to get them to leave somewhere else and come to them yeah yeah. And when you're looking at that whole conversation, the way you related it, I'd never heard it quite articulated that way about most of the time when company is requiring a college degree, it's risk mitigation. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think that's an important concept as you start to talk with other companies and other people start to talk with their own companies about how do you get past that? Yeah. So we have a combination of risk mitigation in that HR departments are looking for kind of minimum thresholds to establish what competency is. But given the number of people in our sector who have a degree that is not a, a STEM related degree, it's really just meeting a bar. And that bar gives kind of a, a baseline of acceptability from the company's perspective. And not to you know, decry that and say that that shouldn't have a minimum standard, it's artificially setting up a requirement that doesn't necessarily need to be there. And whether we think about um, some companies have H-1B visas that they're trying to protect, and if they take somebody who potentially doesn't have a degree, there's a concern that they could be jeopardizing access to future H-1Bs. Um, you could create equity issues inside the organization if you have a strong candidate who comes in without the degree and you have an entire department that has degrees, you start to create some paradigms internally, which is why I go back to my culture conversation of we have a number of very large companies that are saying we recognize that that degree is an artificial inflation of requirement and we're now going to extract that from consideration and look at capacity to learn and the skill sets they bring to the table rather than the degree as the baseline. But to be candid, most companies are still trying to figure out how do we screen for that and what does it look like? Right, right. Well, and, and I guess that's where the apprenticeship helps mitigate some of that risk because right. you've done some upfront screening. Yeah. And as I recall, the company has the opportunity to interview the candidates before they get fully accepted into the program. Do That's I remember correct. that correctly? Yeah. 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 We, so they have that baseline competency we talked about earlier that mm -hmm. they're taking online and I, I won't speak to them until they've passed that assessment. 
So that's, you know, kind of the qualitative and quantitative. That's the yeah. quantitative. Then the qualitative is where we're screening them uh, on a one-to-one basis for the skill sets they're bringing to the table. And the skills are transferable skills that the company might see value in. I've got a couple of examples I can give here in a second. Mm-hmm. And then the company, based on the curated group that we bring to them, gets the opportunity to interview them on that soft skills basis and make the selection themselves. On the the skill basis, if we think about what a resume typically shows, and the reason I don't give the company a resume on any of these candidates, is if I saw you know Burger King manager at the top of the resume, mm-hmm. the first thing an HR person's going to do is throw that out. It's not relevant to us. But right. from a skill set perspective, that person brings time management, supply chain management, payroll, uh, consumption and, and food storage, like they've got a whole supply chain in their system of, of knowledge. And there are companies that, you know, we have jobs that are either project management or systems administrators that have to look at that kind of data in a different way, but they have the capacity because they've already done things similar to it that are just in an adjacent role that, if we talk about them in terms of a skill set and present that to the company without the context of how they did it or where they did it, suddenly companies are more responsive to that. Yeah. I assume that as you're doing that and looking at those candidates, when you're looking at uh, someone who's just coming out of a career in the armed services and mm-hmm. going into uh, the civilian world, it's it's peeling back those layers and translating what they accomplished, what they performed in the military into the language of business and what skills that distills down to, right? Correct. Yeah. Your MOS in the military does not correlate directly one-to-one with any job in tech. And so there's a difficulty in finding a role that you meet the requirements for. But again, if we talk about what you learned, the systems that you worked on and how relevant that is, then it becomes a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to dig into the numbers a little bit, because I think that the Apprentice program has been incredibly successful. And I would love our listeners to understand a little bit about that success through numbers. Hey, we are a bunch of, of IT people, right? <laughs> we are. <laughs> um, so let's start with diversity. What's kind of the breakdown, if you will, of uh, underrepresented minorities, veterans, women in the program? Yeah. So uh, we recruit, uh, not exclusively, but we focus our recruiting on diversity. So 84% of my applicants in the pool are from diverse groups. And for us, we do define it, as you just said, as, as women, underrepresented minorities, and veterans. And it breaks out like this. These are obviously overlapping populations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 34% women, which I would love to see more women applying to the program. are veterans and 54% are underrepresented persons of color. That's outstanding because when you look at the numbers in tech, they're nowhere near those percentages. That's right. Yeah. So even when you look at, I think the last number I saw for women in tech was 22, 23%, something like that. Yeah. 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 Well, and and this is one of the challenges I had coming from the insurance sector. When we talk about percentages of, you know, women, even in that industry or people of color or veterans, it ends up being that, you know, they'll, they'll declare a percentage, but it's typically in frontline staff. It's 
customer service, claims. It, it's not in the you know higher ranks, the the higher income ranks, let alone the leadership ranks. And so part of what we're focused on here is not just economic mobility, but roles that have career progression options. And these are middle skills jobs that we're moving people into at an entry level, but they're middle skills when we talk about software development, cloud administration, uh, business analysts, cyber analysts. So these are roles that pay significantly better and have a long-term career trajectory behind them. As we're looking at this, one of the stunning numbers to me when we were talking before was the ratio of applicants to job openings and how, since we're talking about the narrowing of the funnel, how that funnel narrows as they go through the process. Can you talk us through those numbers? Yeah, we're at about 25,000 applicants today nationally. Right. So there's a lot of desire pent up by the community, of course, to find an alternate pathway in. Um, that don't come from that traditional, you know, 25 to 30% that go to university. But let's come back to that one in a second as well. And as you're coming down the funnel, about half of them don't complete the assessment, which is already step one. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're, we're now looking for people with that, that grit. So of the half that complete, about half again of those, maybe a little over half, finish the assessment and score. So now we're down in that 25 to 28% of the 25,000 population. Mm -hmm. And within that group, um, then there's a significant percentage that take it a second time and, and they're limited on how many times they can take it and the questions refresh. And in that group, those are the people who are looking not only for a pathway in, but they recognize that they want to improve their score for consideration. And I jokingly referred to this last time. It should have been your cue to my sports background. I think I called it the Madden rules. Uh, Madden <laughs> rules apply. Whoever's on the cover of the Madden game is never your best player. Right, right. <laughs> so Madden rules apply. The person who scores 100 on the test and is number one, no offense, because they may be wonderful candidates, but traditionally not really the best candidates. But the people who score 20, 30, 40, 50, and have some self-awareness when we get to the interview conference about how they they gotten to where they are. The median age in our program is 33. So this is not tied to college or credit. These are people who are career transitional or career opportunity uh, movement. And these are people who have got 10 years of life and work experience under their belts ready to make a career shift instead of a job change, very different mentality, and they're willing to do what it takes. And they've got some self-awareness about what they've done to get themselves to where they are and what they need to do differently to have a better outcome in the future. Mm -hmm. After they've gone through the assessment and you've narrowed the funnel, so to speak, how many finish the three to five months of classroom training? 93%. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, 93% finish class and go to job. And 88% of those completers from the job get retained um, with their employer. And those that that don't, the 12% that don't get retained, what are some of the reasons that you see that they don't uh, end up staying with that employer? Uh, it's a variety of things. You've got uh, some folks who just decide this is not for them. 
and you've got some folks who may not have liked the company, but aren't yet sure where they want to go. You know, it might be that I was in a very large company and I, I wasn't comfortable there. So I'm now looking for a smaller company to go to and or vice versa. They were in a smaller company and now they want to go to a larger company. Um, and, and then you've just got those that fall off and, and go, hmm, I'm still not sure what I want to do, but it's a pretty small percentage. Well, one last data point that I'd love to dive into before we, we come to a close here is uh, of the candidates that go through the process, what's the percent that have a college degree? Yeah. So because I don't qualify this um, at the start of the process, I only get to know degree attainment when they've been accepted by a company okay. and are being sponsored into apprenticeship. Of those that are being sponsored into apprenticeship, 54% have a college degree. So about half, a little little more than half. A little more than half. And there are people who have traditionally or typically gone to online college. Um, they've done it night and weekends, maybe some for-profit schools. Um, people we as an industry sector don't go out and typically recruit from. And before you ask it, the retention rate. You knew where I was going. <laughs> I knew where you were going. The retention rate on non-college versus college is identical. I think that's an amazing stat in and of itself. Uh, because as you said, one of the reasons why companies have that requirement is risk mitigation. Mm -hmm. That they see if someone's gone through a degree program, they've got the grit, they've got the determination to stay with it this really underscores that this apprenticeship program is also that same level of risk mitigation. Mm -hmm. Yep. It, it is part of the risk mitigation, but it's interesting um, that if you really talk to the CIO or the CTO, they will come back with typically, I only care if they can do the job. Yeah. Their focus is about getting the work done. And then, you know, other areas of the business are focused on that risk mitigation and this is a way to bring those two pieces together because it's still a lower risk opportunity. And there are ways that we can coach the company through some of the more challenging risks, um, pay bans, not aligning to apprenticeship or H-1B visa issues, or, you know, we have a, a, an attorney on staff focused on employment law who can help a company through those. We are all about action here on Status Go. And so we're, we're at that time in our discussion in our conversation, Jennifer, where I'm going to put you on the spot mm -hmm. and ask you, what are one or two things that our listeners should do tomorrow because they listen to us today? Uh, well, if you are interested in tech and you are looking at how do I get into the role and you're on the consumer side, go to ApprentiCareers.org and apply and get into the candidate pool. That would be the first and only thing I would say to them. On the company side, it's actually, I think, a simple exercise, but it's not a tactical one because it's emotional. Sit down as in a leadership team within your organization and get really pragmatic about the jobs you have posted and look at those to see which ones truly require the college degree or higher and where you're putting the college degree on merely because it's that's the way it's always been and reevaluate those middle skill roles to see if there are other ways you can be onboarding talent that would open the door to more opportunity and diversity. That would be one. And then second would be 
now that you've done that exercise, what can you create additional roles? If you have, going back to that comment earlier, more than three to four months per job posting, mm -hmm. can those roles be recreated as junior level roles? And do you have enough staff one-to-one -one, that you can bring somebody on as an apprentice that you have a mentor for on staff that can be coaching them? And you might find that not only can we create net new talent that way, but you can onboard them into your company the way you want them to behave and, and grow. So they are going to be better employees in the long run because you're making an investment in them. I think that's great. I love the way that you approached it both from a candidate perspective and for a company perspective. And it's a great way to widen the top of the funnel as you're looking at the candidates, evaluate what you're requiring of those candidates coming in. And, and the other thing that struck me in what you were saying there was if you're searching for job roles for three or four months, why not have a junior role that you can fill quicker and then bring them along so that they're ready for that senior role that you've been trying to fill and can't? That's fantastic advice, Jennifer. And, you know, that's it's as much a philosophical one for the company as it is a tactical one. But you know, one thing we didn't talk about that I would just kind of put a finer point to, we can't create more talent out of the college ranks tomorrow. Right. We graduate 75,000 computer science degrees a year in this country at the four-year level. We posted 3 million jobs last year. Something is going to have to give in the system. And if we continue to go back to the same well, looking for diversity that wasn't there in the first place, that problem will persist. Yeah, it goes back to uh, what was the quote from Einstein, whoever the definition over, over is uh, the definition of insanity. <laughs> yeah. Doing the same thing over again, expecting a different outcome. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jennifer, I, I thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. I feel like every time you and I talk, I come away with two or three different insights into the problem as well as the solution to the problem. So thank you for sharing that with our audience today. Thanks, Jeff. I really appreciated being here. To our audience, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information, and, and we'll be sure and provide links to some of the data that Jennifer shared with us today. This is Jeff Tun for Jennifer Carlson. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.